Asia Tech Podcast with Graham Brown and Michael Waits. Hello and welcome to Asia Tech Podcast AI. My name is Graham Brown. Today I'm joined by Fred Mittelstedt. We're going to talk about artificial intelligence, artificial general intelligence, and the life of a globe-trotting musician and programmer. Fred, welcome to the show. Hi, Graham. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you. Just so the listeners understand, there's an interesting switch. You're from London. I'm from Tokyo. Today, I'm in London. You're in Tokyo. That's the way it exactly. goes. <laughs> Talk a little bit about yeah. yourself first, because I think it's funny, because you've done so much traveling recently. You describe yourself as a digital nomad. I think people may have heard of this term before, but what exactly are you doing? You don't really have a permanent base, or what kind of lifestyle do you lead? Um, so I guess what I mainly do like professionally right now is being the founder of an artificial intelligence startup. Mm-hmm. And in terms of lifestyle, uh, for the last 13 months, 13 and a half months, I haven't had a permanent base. I've been uh, traveling around the world, um, staying at various places for a couple of weeks or months at a time. So I had like those semi-permanent bases, but uh, no real base where all my stuff is. And so I've been living essentially out of a backpack and working remotely um, for all that time. Living the dream. Fantastic. More so, or less. Hmm. Yeah. So how long have you been in Tokyo? Um, I've been in Tokyo for two months now uh, with a short stint to go to Hong Kong in between. Right. Um, but yeah, for, uh, for two months, um, it's not my first time here in Japan. Um, I also speak a little bit of Japanese because I learned it as a child. Hmm. And um, I've been working on various projects here and getting involved in the ICO space, which is very hot here. So, yeah. Okay. Well, we'll talk about artificial intelligence in a minute. And we'll talk about, you know, your involvement with Xeroth. So we had Taklo on the show just a few weeks back as well, the artificial intelligence accelerator based in Hong Kong. I'm curious, traveling the world in a backpack and doing what you're doing with Automorph, is it easy to do that kind of lifestyle because i imagine people listen to it and think oh wow look here's a guy who's building a a tech startup and he's living out of a backpack is that possible um well it is possible if you uh, actually focus on your work um i think as a digital nomad especially when you start off and you haven't traveled the world that much there's you kind of do want to explore. You do want to see lots of places because you feel like you have to catch up. But mm. after you've done that for a while, that drive to hurry from place to place goes away because there is no need to hurry anymore. Mm. And so ever since I settled down a little bit and I'm in places for a longer period of time, mainly driven by where I want to work from, um, it becomes very easy because all I have to do is to set myself a routine wherever I am and then I can actually focus on my work very well. Mm. The other advantage of being a nomad is not having a regular apartment where you have to take care of household chores and uh, cleaning and so on actually frees up a lot of your time. And mm. so I have a relatively free schedule. So apart from sleeping, I can, you know, fill up my day as I like. So if I really want to focus on my work, I have, let's say, 16 or 17 hours, depending on how long I sleep. And that's something you typically don't get in a regular job with an apartment and commuting and so on. So right. I can actually get a lot more work done. That's interesting, isn't it? Because you would imagine that you have 
in that lifestyle, you have access to less things like, you know, you don't have a permanent office and all those kind of things, but you're saying it's more productive. And especially with your kind of work, you're doing, I guess, a lot of programming or tech type work. What kind of things are you doing at Automoff? We'll talk um, about Automoff, the company in a minute, but the actual work that you do, is yeah. it programming based? Um, so right now, the, the main work that I'm doing is uh, programming. So mm. for that, I don't really need to be anywhere. I maybe need an internet connection, of course, right. but that's um, relatively easy to get anywhere. And apart from that, the only thing that I really need is focus. So if I can find myself a spot to work from that allows me to have that focus, I can easily get my work done. Right. So that's all I need. Okay, well, let's talk about Automorph then, because people are going to be curious, because you talk of Automorph as artificial general intelligence. Now, that's kind of important as a definition, isn't it? Because that puts you in a certain category. What, what exactly yeah. is artificial general intelligence? Um, so, I mean, uh, artificial general intelligence is kind of this uh, catch-all term for techniques that uh, allow a computer system to not only learn to do specialized tasks like mm. most AI techniques um, are focused on today, but to learn general types of tasks. And what I'm doing with Automorph is essentially creating a blueprint or kind of a foundation for an AI system that is modular. And so it can learn one task at a time, but these different tasks can integrate. And so hopefully by giving it more and more different things to learn, different methods, mm -hmm. I can create a system that can integrate lots of different um, um, vertical-specific approaches. Right. For example, we have um, computer vision systems that perform various types of tasks like classification. We have um, systems that can analyze audio and perhaps extract text from it. We have... Um, reasoning engines we have natural language processing systems and so all of these systems right now they exist in their own little bubble separated from each other and what we as human beings let's say do we have all of these faculties as well we understand text we see we hear but they all come together and so one thing that is missing right now is this base that brings it all together and that's what i'm trying to build right see that fascinates me but we had on the show a few weeks back, we had Praveen Velu, who da, who founded Evie, which is the, mm -hmm. the scheduling assistant. Yep. And yep. the way he talked about it was, he, he's coming from a different approach to you, which is the approach that I think most people are taking in this field, which is find a specific task. In this case, it's scheduling. So yep. it's like, Fred, you know, what are you doing on Tuesday? Um, I'm having this interview with Graham. Um, and you, you'd fix out a schedule by looking at your schedule and fixing it up with Graham's schedule. The, the, the field, the space in which that can operate is very, very narrow because, you know, if you're scheduling, you're not going to go off and start talking about politics, are you? Mm -hmm. So the artificial intelligence can narrow it down, define and master a task, and then get better and better at that task. And then maybe from that go out into different areas. Why have you decided to come from a different angle? You, you, you're sort of saying that, okay, that's fine, but real intelligence is more like this. It's sort of a general solve-all type of problems, isn't it? How, how do you go about that? Because it seems such a huge task. Uh, it is quite a huge task. And um, people try to do it like a couple of decades back when artificial intelligence was really starting off as a research project. And then people realized it's really difficult and they focused on these domain-specific problems. Mm. But 
I was essentially sitting down um, one day thinking about, okay, if somebody was to build AGI, what kind of um, artificial general intelligence, um, what kind of properties would it have? What kind of abilities would it need to have? Like how imagining what that kind of system would look like and what it would do. And then, and then I tried to kind of go back step by step. What kind of facilities does it need? What do I need to provide as a baseline? And then I kind of came up with the idea that fundamentally this kind of system needs to be able to um, model knowledge mm. and integrate various types of um, knowledge and information. For example, um, like uh, sound and uh, text and um, images and process them. And so if you can provide a, a foundation that allows you to integrate these different approaches, hopefully um, you'll be able to eventually achieve um, something that comes closer to human level intelligence. Mm. So it was kind of going back from what is the like far uh, future goal and how can we best get there step by step. Okay. So this is going to make you laugh because Actually, I studied artificial intelligence a couple of decades mm -hmm. ago. Like you yeah. say, I was from that era when they yeah. were doing the, the very holistic approach from artificial intelligence back in the 90s, yeah. when yeah. artificial intelligence was pretty much a useless application if you had it, if you had it on your <laughs> degree like me. When I graduated with artificial intelligence, they looked at it and said, wow, you can't do anything with that. You can either go to MIT and teach artificial intelligence, or you can go and become an English teacher and travel the world, which is what I did. AI had no application back then in the 90s. But it's kind of interesting that one of the things that I sort of learned about artificial intelligence back then, the general approach is, well, why, I think, why are animals intelligent in the first place? And one of the things I, 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 I kind of realized is that we have general intelligence because intelligence helps us survive as mm. an organism. So, you know, the difference between this animal and this animal's survival is this one's more intelligent. It can evade predators. It can find food. It can find mm -hmm. warmth. So I always wondered if we were going to create artificial general intelligence, we needed organisms we needed computers we needed beings which survived or you know would live or die so yeah. i guess the question i'm coming to it's a philosophical question how can you have intelligence without survival how, how is that possible because if this machine or this animal doesn't survive it can't learn why it's becoming intelligent in the first place or is, is that too meta too <laughs> philosophical is it not important no, I, th I think I think it is actually important, but we have to kind of separate uh, two points here. First of all, um, it is very difficult to define at all what intelligence is because it is so multifaceted. Most um, definitions of intelligence are kind of focused on our human domain, um, like what we define as intelligent, what is necessary in our lives. Um, but that doesn't need to apply to a computer, for example, or our intelligence might be qualitatively different from the intelligence of some uh, non-mammal animal. Uh, so in terms of what intel intelligence really is, um, is first of all, the ability to have different types of behaviors that you mm -hmm. can somehow um, use in appropriate situations. 
And then secondly, it is learning. So adding new behaviors, adapting behaviors, adapting when which type of behaviors are used. And for that, you need some kind of learning algorithm, let's say. In, um, in the example you gave kind of out of nature, this is essentially evolution and uh, survival. And so what I'm trying to do is essentially, first of all, provide the technical base to store that kind of information in the first place and then go about adding a learning algorithm on top of that. And one example would be evolutionary algorithms, which do exactly what you described. Mm. Instead of just, you know, writing down one specific algorithm for a problem, you rather say, okay, um, I want to, I want to solve a specific type of problem as well as possible. And then you iterate through generations and generations of solutions. Hopefully at the end of it, um, you end up with an algorithm that the computer evolved, which is, um, best at solving the problem. Mm. And so these two angles, uh, evolution or um, various types of learning algorithms and the technological base and how it's implemented are two separate things. And um, my, uh, the focus right now is on the technical base. Okay, excellent definition. Thanks for that, Fred. Can you tell us a little bit about how it works? Because you've actually written your own programming language for this, right? As far as I understand. Can you sort of just dive in a little bit into automorph and tell us how it works and you know you're speaking to people the listeners will be ai people so they'll understand the concepts and they'll understand the technological side of things so you know don't hold back on the technology so go deep into what you're actually doing and share with us what you can share oh yeah sure um i'm happy to um when you start off trying to think about how you best model information and knowledge and how things relate, you eventually um, need to make some architectural decisions. And typically, um, in the past, people have used uh, things like knowledge databases and uh, semantic graphs. The problem with all of these approaches is that they're relatively static. You have this static data store that is doing something. It's not really focused on uh, performing any actions on its own. Whereas an AI system, as you think about it, would, for example, need to execute algorithms. But those algorithms also constitute its own knowledge because um, a system should, for example, be able to improve its own algorithms for uh, computer vision. Therefore, it must inspect its algorithms. And that is not possible in a classical semantic hypergraph or similar. And it is unfortunately actually not possible in most standard programming languages. So none of the current languages could really serve as a base. And therefore, I decided to essentially just implement my own language in which I can model all aspects of both the uh, applications or algorithms in it, as well as the uh, runtime engine um, from within the language. And that would allow the AI to adapt any of those paths as it uh, sees fit. So you built your own um, language to build your platform on top of, right? Because the languages exactly, out there uh, weren't good enough. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Um, you can uh, you can essentially think of it less as just a language, but rather as a way of modeling information. Hmm. And if you want to model arbitrary information, you need uh, a system that's uh, r largely inspired by mathematics and uh, type theory. And so I try to build something that uh, goes as close to theory as possible while still being usable by human beings. Right. Um, and so that was the main motivation by building that language. 
right. the core of this language, uh, the core of the language itself is built. And now um, the main focus is on building algorithms and data structures on top of this. Basically, every single piece of code that you write in Morph becomes a piece of knowledge that the AI can use to uh, perform a task. So Morph is the programming language which you've built. Is that going to be yep. proprietary, or do you plan to uh, offer that as gonna open source? It's going to be open sourced. It's right. going to be open sourced, definitely. Yeah. Okay. So you're going to um, you can offer the Morph programming language as open source. I mean, what sort of stage are you with that? Is it ready to become open source? Or are you still got a bit more development to do. Um, the language itself is built. What is missing right now is um, uh, developer friendly documentation. Mm. But um, we're working on that right now. So hopefully by beginning of Next year, sometime maybe around February, we hope to release all of that publicly so people can get uh, started with Morph, start building um, data structures and mm. designing applications and so on uh, with Morph and Automorph. Fantastic. I, so please explain to me, as, as I said to you earlier, Fred, that you know I studied AI back in mm. the 90s. Our programming languages back then were very different to what you have now, mm. very, very basic by comparison. It was a different millennia, right? So, <laughs> you know, I was using Poplog and Prolog, which are list-based languages, which are so primitive yeah. compared to now. What's the landscape like now? I mean, why did you build Morph compared to what else is out there? I'm sure there must be a lot of, you know, tools out there for building AI-type applications. Why did you need to go and build something new? Um. I, w um, I would actually say that the landscape hasn't changed that much at all. Most really? languages that are uh, in use today are still relatively old. Most of them were conceived in uh, the 90s or earlier. And uh, the only evolution that we have now is that we have more frameworks, uh, that we have more data available. That's actually the main um, improvement that has happened over the last two decades. Mm. And um, what... Uh, the actual downside of uh, the trend of the last couple of um, years is that people have focused on languages that have little expressiveness, um, so that have little ability to model information on their own. They're great, they're great for building certain types of application. They're bad at building general purpose models like I need. Mm. Languages that are good at that comparably are Lisp or Smalltalk, um, mm. which used to, uh, like Lisp especially, is obviously still popular in this community. And Lisp has been around for a long time, um, whereas Smalltalk has been popular in the past and ideas of Smalltalk has been, have been integrated in lots of languages. But um, Smalltalk itself is not the most popular language right now. The advantage that uh, something like Lisp or Smalltalk offer is, first of all, conceptual simplicity. In Lisp, everything, including all um, program data structures, are um, lists, and you can modify mm -hmm. them from within the language. So the la uh, a running program can modify itself at runtime. And that's architecturally uh, similar to an AI that essentially learns how to improve its own learning algorithm if implemented, you know, if you implement something sophisticated on top of that. Mm. And Smalltalk, for example, um, uh, is conceptually simple in that it, everything in Smalltalk is an object. So there are no differences between, let's say, strings and integers and booleans and other types of data structures. It's all objects, and you have one kind of interface to, uh, to work with everything. And I want to have something that is uh, similarly elegant, similarly simple, and so general that you can build on top of it. Mm. Now, for modeling algorithms, 
um, in most languages, you essentially write um, functions and um, perhaps some classes with methods, but all of these uh, functions have lists of expressions, and these expressions are evaluated uh, one after the other, and um, that's how basically any language functions under the hood. Now, the problem is these data structures are usually not inspectable at runtime. So if you load, let's say, a uh, if you run a Python script, and then you would wanted to ask the Python um, interpreter, okay, can you tell me how this method functions that I've defined here? The Python interpreter wouldn't be able to do it because you have no way of inspecting how that method works. And therefore, um, that becomes unsuitable for an AI that wants to inspect how, uh, how itself works and how to improve its own routines. Mm. And so you need this ability to model algorithms efficiently. And this ability, unfortunately, is lacking in most languages. And they have, that was my prime motivation to build my own. Got it. So, I mean, you mentioned Python as an example people will be very familiar with. Is, mm. so are you saying that these, these languages don't have some kind of meta ability to understand what they're doing? Is, is that what it is? Because I don't really get that part. It's a bit missing on me. Um, yeah, so the uh, every language has kind of its own conceptual idea behind it. And every language is largely uh, driven by the core people that came up with the idea, like Guido in the case of um, Python. And um, different languages give the developer different levels of insight in how the engine itself works. Right. Uh, something like Python gives you some access. Something like Smalltalk or Lisp gives you a lot of access. And most languages that are popular right now give you very, very little access. That's basically the difference. Mm. So, yes, the, that meta level differs in strength in different languages. Right. And in something like Lisp and Smalltalk, it's the strongest. Right. And, and I want to have the best of both worlds. So specifically for AI, this is important because you have to be able to, as you say, during the runtime itself, be able to understand what each one of these functions or these objects are doing and to be able to change them as it's running, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so let's talk about Automorph. What, what, I mean, this is early stages, but mm -hmm. what is it that something like Automorph does well at? And what kind of tasks is it still, you know, are still very, very far away? So if, if you were to define all the different kind of aspects of general intelligence, you know, there's like, you know, <laughs> pattern recognition and, you know, like object re recognition or sounds and so on, which ones does it do very well at this early stage are the easiest ones to master? Um, so in terms of uh, general intelligence, all the examples that you gave are essentially um, verticals. Right. Uh, verticals um, are, uh, centered around our different type, uh, senses. But there are other types of um, tasks that a general intelligence should be able to do. In particular, write its own um, computer programs. So mm. essentially, it should be able to extend itself with new abilities. And that's the part that I focus on first. So Automorph right now is actually designed to write computer programs. And that's also the first commercial offering that we have. Um, Automorph will enable you to uh, describe uh, what kind of application you want, and it will um, write the source code, configure all your systems, your containers, uh, your uh, deployment environment for you. Uh, so instead of having uh, human developers write the code for you, Automorph does it. Mm. And... Um, that makes for a good first commercial offering, but it also enables um, Automorph to design its own algorithms for learning, uh, design its own algorithms for specific tasks like vision, um, hearing, uh, natural language processing, and to integrate those. 
Mm. So um, the first major task for Automorph is to write software. And that's what it's good at. Uh, where's the feedback loop in that? Is it from the client saying, I don't like that or change that? Or is it within <laughs> the actual program itself where Automorph says, oh, well, somebody said, I want a program like this before and I used X, so I'm going to use X again. Can you describe a little bit about the actual feedback cycle so it, how it learns? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, sure. Um, fundamentally, if you uh, set up a development project uh, then you typically come up with an idea of what your app is supposed to do, hmm. uh, features, design, um, and so on and so forth. And you might give that to a developer or you as a developer sit down and you think of, okay, how do I translate this idea into data structures and user interfaces and so on and so forth that do what I want to do? And then you um, select different types of platforms for your applications. You select um, classes and methods that do what you want to do and then uh, essentially item by item in your specification, uh, you go um, through that list um, and turn it into data structures uh, for the app. And after you're done with that process, you have a finished app. And uh, that process is one-to-one -one replicated in Automorph. Mm. Um, you could, uh, you for example, uh, describe that you want to have an application uh, that runs on web, desktop, um, and mobile that um, handles specific types of data objects, has certain views, and then your users can log in with these and these methods. They can perform certain actions if they have some kind of subscription. And by writing all of that down in a format that Automov understands, it can then go through that list like a human developer would and turn that into the parts of your applications that you need. Right mm -hmm. now, that process is... Um, focused on SaaS applications. So we're trying to replicate everything that SaaS apps can do. And for that, we build uh, web APIs, backend, other backend services, uh, as well as web, desktop, and mobile apps. Mm. So does Automorph develop that in a way that a human developer would, which would be a very iterative process, wouldn't it? It would be sort of, here's the very basic foundations, yeah. and then I'm going to try this code. It doesn't work. I'm going to keep iterating that code until... I either get into a dead end and I have to back out and try something new or, you know, I get a breakthrough and it works. Does it do it like a human would do it? Just sort of walk us through that process because um, I'm fascinated by how this actually works. Um, yeah, so the idea was to replicate exactly the process that a human developer would go through. Right. It tries out various approaches to solve a problem and once it's found one that actually works, um, it sticks with that. It also provides you with code comments and everything that a human developer would write as well as tests. Hmm. So you really end up with source code that looks like a human developer would have written it. Um, so the goal is if you see source code generated by Automorph, you wouldn't be able to tell whether it's written by a human being or by, uh, by Automorph. Hmm. And um, um, yeah, so it's kind of the same iterative process. The so advantage of Automorph is that the entire process of kind of going through everything takes a matter of seconds or maybe even less than a second depending on the complexity of the project wow. so as somebody who's trying to build an app normally you would you know come up with an idea write it down give it to a developer you wait a couple of weeks depending on you know how difficult it is and you get back an app and then you realize oh this part sucks or i want to change these and these mm -hmm. views and then you would you know write some comments give it back to the developer the developer would sit down spend more time on it 
and you would get it back. And so this feedback cycle in traditional development is really, really slow and really frustrating for most people involved. Frustrating, yeah. Whereas, yeah, um, whereas with Automorph, the process of actually implementing that specification takes a couple of seconds. Wow. So your feedback cycle is really fast, um, and therefore... Um, you can start off with a simple specification and then you add more and more features. And because you see almost immediately um, what it looks like, what it feels like, you as someone who wants to build an app uh, can progress much faster than you currently can. Mm. Right. What kind of apps, what kind of specifications does Automorph work well with when it comes to writing programs? Because I can imagine there must be some things which it does well at and some things it's still learning itself, right? And you're learning. Mm. So is there any yeah. kind of application where, it, yep, it's proved itself, it can build this in seconds compared to weeks and months with a human developer? Where's it working right now? Yeah, so the initial focus has been on supporting... Um, First of all, to make everything kind of look very pretty and polished, so to support a modern design process, uh, so the apps don't look like they're kind of from uh, 2005 and done mm. by um, uh, some part-time freelancer, but uh, rather they look professionally designed. That was the first focus. The second focus was integrating all types of um, media, so um, animations, images, um, image galleries, videos, um, sound, um, any kind of interactive elements. Mm. And then thirdly, um, data-driven views. So you can have um, various types of visualizations, whether it's graphs or flowcharts or, you know, whatever else you like um, that are data-driven. Um, uh, those are the main, fo uh, th that was the main focus initially. Mm. And, the, uh, and so any app that does something remotely, Related to these things, uh, it can uh, Automorph can build right now. So, for example, something like a social network like Twitter or Facebook, or um, something like YouTube, um, it could build that. Mm. It could build that right now. So, um, Freddie, if I came to you and, and said another thing that we, uh, hey, I've got this yeah. idea. I have this idea for this mm -hmm. this app, and it's an app where. Yeah. It's a social app where people can log in and they can update their status and they can just. Mm update the status and put 160 characters of text in it and that's all they're allowed <laughs> and, and people can you know if somebody reads a status from fred and i like it i can click a button and that then that status will repeat on my status and this is my app it sounds silly but i think it might work if i came to you with something like that um very very basic i can use it on my phone i can use it on the yeah. web, would you say, okay, we can give it a go in Automorph, or would you say, well, give me another year and we, it's ready? What sort of stage are we at now? Could you build something um, like that? Yeah, that, that's uh, exactly it. That is, um, that is what we uh, would already be able to do now. Mm. And um, the obviously missing part is how to kind of tell people um, to use Automorph to put in their specification. Right. But um, that's why we're uh, working on creating a... Uh, better user interface right now, as well as lots of documentation and uh, tutorials. So, um, you know, I, I, ideally, I don't want you to come to me personally and tell me, okay, let's do this, but rather I want to give you the ability to learn how to work with Automorph directly. So you can sit down on your computer, um, go to, uh, go to Automorph and, um, work with our system and it will give you that app. Right. Technically, it's possible today. And the uh, documentation and UI will be done beginning of next year. That's the plan. 
and we'll release it publicly then. So by then you will be able to come to us and do exactly that. Yeah. So do you see in the future Automorph developers? So people who become skilled at developing with Automorph in a way? So, or, or do you see this open to the public? How do you see that? Because if it was Automorph developers, you're kind of taking developers from the other side and then sitting them in front of Automorph, right? Because Automorph's now doing mm. all the heavy lifting, but you have to tell Automorph how to do it, right? You have to say, yeah. this is what we want. How's that going to work? Or is it going to be just the average person can program or just say, Automorph, do this? What, what do you want as a vision? Uh, as a vision, I want to enable um, what we, I guess, call non-technical people mm. right now to be able to sit down with Automorph and uh, create an app in half an afternoon. That is that is what I want. Right. So that's harder Obviously, than getting Automorph developers, isn't it? Because Automorph developers already have narrowed down the possibility, haven't they? But if you go to the non-technical yeah. person... Wow, you've got so many different possibilities. I, right? I want an app that yeah. you know, paints this picture or whatever. It's like, well, what does the yeah. picture mean? You've got to start with all those kind of assumptions. Yeah. Exactly. And so the end goal of letting anybody build anything is quite far away. But, um, for example, right now we have all of these analysts and associates who build complex applications with macros in Excel and that requires a certain skill of coding. We yeah. don't call it coding, but it is coding. Excel is a programming system. And so somebody who's able to build, you know, complex Excel spreadsheets slash applications, uh, someone like that should be able to pick up how to use Automorph yeah. um, within a few days using our tutorials and then um, be able to build applications with it. Yeah. And so somebody who already knows how to think uh, in models, somebody who has some understanding of um, how to structure an application or who can kind of get into that mindset easily, they should be able to um, adopt Automorph um, essentially right now. Hmm. Okay, step outside of Automorph a little bit and sure. let's talk about the the human intelligence behind Automorph. So that's Frederick Mittelstedt yourself. You're, yeah. I'm, I'm fascinated by you because you have this interesting background which I want to talk a little bit about that you, I can see you're doing some amazing things with Automorph, especially on the language side. Then you have this interesting language background. You mentioned that you are, are fair that you learned Japanese as a kid. So I want to understand that. And you're also a musician. And I don't think people appreciate how similar all of these things are, like music, languages, and programming. And they seem very different. You know, music seems to be a very creative endeavor you know people understand music but programming seems to be computers it's technical and so on but for me having experimented with all of these things i think they're very similar how do you see it do you see these as a sort of a similar thread in your life with music languages and programming um totally i i uh, totally see what you mean um obviously like these different skills are also used different parts of your brain let's say there is something qualitatively different from playing an instrument or singing and uh, writing things on a computer. Mm. But um, the way you think about it, the way you approach it, let's say, methodically, is actually quite similar. Um, and apart from just uh, learning languages, let's say, and um, playing an instrument, I also used to write music. And so or I still do. And so if you sit down and write music, then that actually is a very, very mathematical process. You mm. think about, okay, 
you have these different types of instruments or these um, human voices you can work with. And then what kind of ranges do they have? What kind of things can they do? How can you combine that? What kind of things um, are harmonic or uh, dissonant? And um, you combine all of these things, and that's actually very similar to programming. But instead of programming a computer to execute, you know, um, uh, execute expressions, you instead um, give instructions to a singer or um, an instrumentalist to uh, perform a song. Hmm. And that's very, very similar in structure. I agree. So how, let's understand it a little bit. What kind of music do you write or create? Um, so I um, I started at a very very early age uh, playing piano. So I've hmm. written a couple of piano pieces. I've also been singing for almost all my life. And um, for about two and a half years while living in London, I was um, part of a professional um, modern choir called London Contemporary Voices. We were performing with you know session musicians at festivals. And for those guys, I wrote a couple of arrangements of um, electronic music that I like. So I transcribed electronic music to um, vocal pieces. But then in my spare time, I also started making electronic music um, using Ableton and um, a DJ controller that I have. Hmm. So for a lot of people, music's like art. You know, it's, it's mm. very artistic. It's an emotional yeah. expression. Um, when you listen to music, you can feel happy or you can cry. Yeah. You, can, you get all these kind of emotions. So to to compare that with a computer, mm. for a lot of people, is is hard to understand. But I want to just explore that a little bit because I think you've probably got a better understanding yeah. than everybody. How can that art be the same as, you know, uh, a computer that's spitting out zeros and ones. Mm. Where's the similarity? Can you, can you help us understand that? Because I think that's an important part yeah. of intelligence, isn't it? And the, the human uh, condition. Yeah. Sure. Um, I think there are kind of two different approaches that I've seen to making music, to creating music. There's this purely creative part where somebody feels the need to express themselves through their music and it's just coming out of them. Yeah. And this kind of raw talent is what people typically have in mind. But there are also many artists and musicians who rather think about what kind of effect do I want to achieve with my audience? What kind of effect can I achieve through a certain technique, whether it is in painting or whether it is in a certain musical style? And so if you start thinking from the side of the um, or from the goal that you have and you work backwards from some kind of abstract goal that you have, then you all of a sudden become really methodical. That has mm. less to do with um, like free expression of creativity, but rather uh, careful construction of some kind of soundscape or uh, a, a certain type of painting. And you can see that a lot in electronic music, for example. Electronic music is inherently constructed. You use a DJ controller to, um, you know, uh, manipulate all your instruments. And that is not something you just jam out. That is uh, hours and hours that you sit in front of a computer and you tweak effects to achieve certain feelings. And so that part of music and that part of art is very methodical. Mm. And um, as and as soon as you become more methodical, you're all, uh, very, very uh, similar to computer programming. Right. That's interesting, isn't it? Because a, a what you're saying is a lot of people think music is this free-flow, creative mm. uh, art form. Yeah. I think if you listen to any musicians talk about their work, I mean, if you go back and study the Beatles, for example. I mean, mm. everybody knows the Beatles. Even though yeah. there was a lot of free-flow creativity and a lot of experimentation, 
a lot of it was, you know, John Lennon had a, a scale or a sound or a riff in his head, which was going over and over in his head for weeks. And then he said, oh, I'm going to put that down and record mm. that on some tape. And often, you know, if, if you are, have been a musician for a number of years, you, you know, in the computer programming terms, the functions that would make that happen, right? So if, if you've got this sound or this sort of, you know, this chord or this melody going around in your head, as a musician, you'd say, okay, I remember how to create something like that. So when I go into the studio next, I'm going to turn that sound in my head into, you know, a minute of music on this tape or this this recording, right? So in a mm. similar way with programming, it's like, well, I remember before that, you know, to do X, I did this, Therefore, my creative idea, I can convert that into reality because I have some sort of experience, right? So I think what you're saying is that, you know, that what we see as this very creative output actually, you know, becomes reality because the musician or the programmer knows what are the building blocks I need for my experience to turn that into a real thing, right? So... Except that's the bit yeah. that I'm trying to get into because I think that's a lot to do with intelligence, isn't it? It's what mm. people think is an emotional thing might actually be just a lot of building blocks that we're like pattern recognition. You know, when mm. people talk about playing chess, don't they? And how is this guy really good at playing chess? Well, they've studied this and they found out the best, the chess grandmasters were just very, very good at remembering lots and lots of patterns. They weren't super yeah. intelligent about it. So I'm just trying to get to that thing about general intelligence and your views no. on it. I, I, I completely uh, agree uh, with what you said. I think, yes, there is that creative spark. You maybe come up with a melody or uh, some lyrics and you want to turn it into a song. That's great. You have that initial spark. But then, you know, even if you have that melody, you have to build uh, this entire soundscape around it. What kind of drums do you need? What kind of drum loops do you want to have in the background? What kind of bass line? What kind of maybe keys or other type, uh, type of synthes uh, synthesizers? Um, how is the bridge supposed to be structured? Et cetera, et cetera. And so even if you have that initial creative spark, so many things need to be built around it. And apart from um, individual, let's say, uh, talented uh, uh, songwriters who come up with that initial spark, there's also usually a, a huge production team around all of this who... Um, help you build that mm. um, entire um, construct. And so, and that uh, starts off with writing the actual song, but then also in recording it, in remastering it, and applying all sorts of effects. So even though there's this initial creative spark, after that it becomes very methodical. Mm. Uh, it's interesting that a lot of the human arts are like that, aren't they? We talk about music, um, a lot, a lot of people talk about comedy in that respect as well, aren't they? You know, some of the famous comedy on TV, like Seinfeld as an example, just pick, you know, there are lots and lots yeah. of script writers, yeah. you know, maybe a creative spark. And then, you know, yeah. there are a team of 20 people writing that script, right? Yeah. In, in the same way, you could break and, that down as a computer it's, program. It's... Totally. And it's not just that. Um, whenever something uh, seems kind of weightless, flawless, easy in some kind of performance, mm. whether it is a piano player, whether it is your favorite band, or whether it's some ballerina. I mean, if you look at ballet and how, you know, people uh, perform on stage, it 
seems so weightless, so elegant, mm. but there's so much hard training, right. repetition, perfection behind it. It is the illusion of simplicity, the illusion of the creative spark, the illusion of um, that elegance. Right. So that's come from thousands or millions of repetitions, right? Which is... Precisely. You know, okay. So let's talk about in that context of language as well. How, how did you end up speaking Japanese as a kid? Where did that come in? Oh, that that was actually very, very random. Um, or was it? You know, be, so, uh, <laughs> in the great, like the Steve Jobs looking back and joining the dots. I don't think it was, but anyway, don't let me stop you. Go on. <laughs> um, uh, the ba- the background was that um, when I in primary school, being kind of bored um, as a child as I was, um, together with uh, three friends who um, were in the same year as me, um, our parents sat down and discussed, okay, what can we kind of do? to uh, keep our children busy in their spare time. And one of them found an offer from the German-Japanese Institute um, to get language classes from a native speaker. And wow. we started trying that out and uh, ended up sticking with it for four years. And at the end of it, I was, or we were fluent enough to uh, like perform short plays and um, have some kind of conversational fluency and read and write it fairly well. And... Uh, I've kept quite a lot of this, and now that I've been back in Japan, I've been able to also revive quite a bit of that. Yeah. How old were you when you started learning uh, Japanese? I I started when I was I think eight, and wow. um, studied until I was twelve, thirteen. Right. So so That's quite amazing. young. Yep. Yeah, yeah. It's a great age to start learning a language as well because it it's a lot harder when you get older. I know people say, but a key part of it is the listening part, isn't it? You, you, the sounds. Are not necessarily exactly. in your head, but I think that they, you know, studies have shown that the human brain has these phonemes, these sounds. Mm. It's, it's, it's why, for example, a, a French speaker will never lose a French accent when they're speaking English yep. unless they learnt it sort of at that age as well. So you started at this young age learning a language. But again, let's go back to this context of like you talk about ballet, right? You know, this effortless mm. art. It's, it's similar in a language, isn't it? Because, you know, there's a lot of repetition in learning a language and, you know, it's like a baby learning a language, you know, the, the mother or the father keeps saying like, go, 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 all very, very, very good. If they say like, do, 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 the, the mum says, ah, oh, well done. You've said your first word. There's, there's that learning cycle, isn't it? It's like, you know, the baby says a sound which doesn't mean anything and the mom give some positive feedback so the baby learns oh if i keep saying that i get positive feedback so the baby doesn't pick up a book and say right how do i learn the language you know the baby just tries millions and millions of different things until it evolves doesn't it into yes word like mama and then everybody gets really excited oh i said (laughs) mama how cute and it's interesting that's how we learn isn't it that you know that's our intelligence yeah. it's it's sort of a uh, just a very basic thing which learns patterns rather than this top down cognitive thing if you like yep true i uh, i agree although there are some minor dif- or some differences between let's say children adults um children especially around the age of 2 are significantly better and faster at picking up these patterns than um adults are and so I think it is like in terms of, for example, learning a language or learning any kind of skill, the earlier 
you can kind of support your children in um, acquiring any kind of skill they like, um, the better, because mm. it will help them to learn new skills in the future. And these are also things that shape their brain in a way that they will never really forget. Mm. Yeah. For sure. I think that's amazing advice. Hey, do, do you ever, just changing gears a bit here, worry about what you're creating? Because I can imagine if mm -hmm. you, you have this conversation with somebody at dinner, oh, what, what are you doing, Fred? And you're saying, well, I'm building this, this platform where artificial intelligence can build programs. So yeah. there is this possibility, I guess, that it could become this self-replicating thing. Yeah. In a way that a virus could become, right? You know, it could become yes. something that... Do you ever kind of worry about the what the the potential is for that? Because you, if, if it works, it has the potential to become something beautiful and also very destructive. In, in, um, in Does that ever bother you? Um, it, I definitely spend time thinking about it. If I didn't, I would be quite reckless, I assume. <laughs> um, it does... It doesn't come up in conversations nearly as often as I, as you would think, because I think a lot of people, even if they might make some jokes about it, are too afraid to start that conversation ever. Hmm. Um, but of course I do think about it. Um, however, right now, and especially in the AI space, there's so much noise, so much, uh, sensationalist propaganda through the media. So it's very difficult to, dif uh, to kind of differentiate between what is real and what is not. And just building a platform that allows you to uh, let's say model information doesn't uh, give you Skynet. What right. uh, what is required for that is um, more autonomy, as well as a certain intent that is programmed into the system. And so, until that would happen, um, there uh, there is no form of danger yet. Mm -hmm. And the and ultimately, I believe that it, um, the biggest danger does not actually come from um, the artificial intelligence system itself, but rather from the people who use it and what it is being used for. And I think that's something that we have to pay a lot of attention to. Mm. Um, and I think there are also a lot of dangers in the AI space in general around how AI is used in the short term that have nothing to do with, you know, far future um, doomsday scenarios, but rather with day-to-day um, -day interactions in which AI can shape the way we think shape our decision-making in ways that we do not even intend. Hmm. It's fascinating. You mentioned the hype, that there's a lot mm. of media hype out there. But I think that the real advances in AI will maybe happen off the radar. It's like what you're doing. I'm fascinated by what you're doing because I, I can see it solves a real problem. And you mentioned it. There is a real problem in the whole programming development cycle. There's a lot of frustration. You know, mm -hmm. if I work with a developer, it's something that may take weeks or months, and it may never happen. You know, I could spend thousands of dollars and get nothing, just lots of angry phone calls or angry Skype chats. That's reality for some clients, right? And so there's a lot of pain there. So you're actually trying to solve that problem. And I think that's where... AI will see its first level of success is solving real problems here and now. I mean, there are people doing the real blue sky stuff, which is fine, mm. but that, these are generations away, I think. This, this is a long time away before that comes through because it needs lots of people like you building these building blocks first to bring it all up to this bigger picture that people are working towards. So 
I, I think what you're doing is really interesting and, and people should really pay attention to it because it may not be the stuff that people talk about in the news, but this is really where AI is going to find its first successes. So, Fred, what I would love you to do is to come back on the show and share with us an update on your journey because I think this yeah, is a journey sure. that you're on. Yeah. Um, I don't know what chapter you're on, but I think it's an early part of the book, right? That you're writing about your journey in AI and you as a developer and as a founder as well. I think there's a lot more that you're going to write and share with us and wherever you end up in the world as well, who knows? So please come back on the show and give us an update on your journey with Automorph. We'd love to find out. So that's Frederick Middlestadt, everybody. Fred, where do we find out more about you? Um, yeah, sure. You can find out more about um, Automorph on www.automorph, that's A-U-T-O-M-O-R-P-H dot com. And uh, there we'll be releasing new updates about our product, as well as uh, start blogging about things that we do with Automorph, as well as our customers do. So um, check that out and find more information there. Excellent. And can I go there? If I'm a programmer and I'm interested in, do you have an SDK? Do you have an API? All those kind of things that I can work with? What's the situation um, that will, uh That will be released publicly uh, beginning of next year. So by beginning of next year, you'll be able to uh, get your hands um, dirty with that. That's excellent. So what I look forward to is, is sometime next year, after you have all that out and people have started playing with it, um, giving you some feedback and some successes, it'd be great at some point next year to get some update on that as well and see what's going on in your community because you would have learned a lot yourself and you will start building community around Automorph. Yeah, sure. I'd love to share that uh, next year and come back. Excellent, Fred. Safe travels. And come back on the show and give us an update. As we said, that's Fred Mittelstadt, everybody. You can find all the details in the show notes. Look forward to having you again on the show. Thanks very much. Thank you. You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at www.asiatechpodcast.com.